Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. And for today's episode, we'll be talking about the electric slide. No, not the dance. That was just a catchy name for the episode, obviously. We're going to be talking about the electrified future of our country. We're going to get to that here in a moment. But for today's episode, we'll be using information from Donut Media, Vox, The New York Times, The White House, and Yale University. I want to first thank all of the subscribers, the people who come back each and every episode who keep coming back to Independent Thought. You are greatly appreciated. And if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. There will be a brand new conversation taking place with me and my guest after our break, just so that you know. So let's dive right on into our main topic of the day. So why are we talking about electricity, the electric of our future? What am I talking about here? Well, first, let me just set the scene really quickly for everyone. I, like millions of people in the country, was watching the Super Bowl this past week. And I could not help but notice just how many commercials were featuring electric cars. Now, this kind of, you know, stuck out a little bit to me. Because I do know, as I reported on earlier, uh, earlier in this season, you know, about like six months ago, the current uh, electric market in America is about, well, at, actually at the time, was about 80% owned by one company, by Tesla. And even though they have such a dominant share of the market, and they still, own, they still actually have 66% of the market, the total market for electric cars in, in America is pretty pretty small. I think relatively speaking in 2021, uh, only 3% of all cars bought were electric vehicles, 5% were hybrids. So it's still a relatively small market for the electric vehicles here in America. But obviously, there is a push to have more electric vehicles here in America. Uh, President Biden was talking about how he wanted to have like hundreds of thousands of charging stations put all across the country. They're giving out tax incentives to people who buy electric cars. There's a push to get electric cars. Now, this is overall a good thing. I mean, if, if there are still people out there who still have the debate in their heads about whether or not, you know, electric cars are actually more sustainable than uh, internal combustion engine cars or just regular cars, I don't understand how you can still have that debate. I mean, I think it's been long addressed just how much of an environmental impact that cars have on the environment, not just with the fuel that they burn, but also just taking into effect how much emissions go into the air due to their manufacturing, their transportation, the actual mining of fossil fuels, the refinement of oil in refineries all over the country. But just in case there's anybody left who is trying to figure out just how much of a difference there is in environmental impact between electric cars and regular internal combustion cars, I have this great clip for all of you from Donut Media. Here's the clip. We know that over the average lifespan of a car with an internal combustion engine, it will emit roughly 57 metric tons of CO2. Over the same time period, the average EV is responsible for 28 metric tons of emissions, less than half of that of an ICE engine. Despite the fact that electric vehicles make more CO2 during their production, they more than make up for it by not having any emissions during use. Taking into account the emissions produced by electric power plants that electric vehicles source their power from, the national average for an EV is around two metric tons per year. So that means the average EV will become more efficient than a gas-powered car between six months to two years of driving it. In fact, even the least efficient electric vehicle with the dirtiest power source, like a coal power plant, 
will be better for the environment than the most efficient gas engine after a certain period of time. Electric vehicles in states with access to cleaner electricity like windmills, solar, and hydroelectric power plants are significantly more efficient. So now that we've kind of laid the groundwork a little bit for why exactly electric cars are obviously better for the environment, let's get into the root of this episode. Let's talk about why I'm bringing this up what exactly needs to change about our current system and how can we all get involved in this conversation in this system? So the first thing I want to say is I'm very excited to see that we are making a legitimate push towards sustainability, towards renewable energy. Uh, but do want to pump the brakes a little bit here because while it is a good thing that we are pushing towards this change of electric cars, electric electrified energy. Uh, the first thing that we have to address is how we actually produce electricity in this country. So now I touched on this again in my geothermal episode back in August of last year, but 60% of our electricity that we generate in America is generated from fossil fuels. So let's just uh, like address this problem right face on, right? So even if every single car in the country was now an electric car, you still have to deal with the reality that more than half of the electricity that we generate comes from fossil fuels. So we're still dealing with a very fossil fuel heavy environment, even in a society that has no fossil fuel cars. So still have to address that. Uh, we need more investments into solar, wind, hydro, and again, geothermal energy, this untapped behemoth that people are not giving enough just investment into. So the question then becomes is like, okay, let's just say, even though that's not the case right now, but let's say that we also invest into that. And we have, you know, solar plants, hydroelectric plants, wind farms, people actually finally utilizing geothermal then, then what happens next? Like, is everything better then? And unfortunately, the answer is still no. No, it's not. Uh, and this is where I'm going to turn now to a Vox video that I came across. And I'm going to have this linked in the episode description because this Vox video lays it out very well. So for those of you who don't want to go watch the video, I'm going to give you some brief notes here. Basically, one of the big hiccups that we're having into having a more renewable energy rich future is the fact that with this renewable energy, it needs to be transmitted from where we're getting it. And so for instance, a lot of the solar and wind energy that was going to be produced in the future uh, will be coming from the middle of the country, mostly the Great Plains states, uh, Montana, all the way down to like New Mexico, and then over to like Minnesota, and then again, like down like to Texas, that little like block in the middle of the country. Most people, you know, in the scientific community believe that the vast amount of wind farms and solar plants are going to be built in this alley of the country. And so the question then becomes, how do you get the energy that is produced or siphoned from that area of the country into essentially into the East and West Coast? Because as it currently is set up right now, there are power plants around the country, basically everywhere, and they don't really have to travel that far because there's so many of these plants everywhere. But with solar and wind, you can't put solar you know, plants everywhere. You can't put wind farms everywhere. They're basically going to be concentrated in the middle of the country. So you have to transmit the energy out. So they're in lines having to build a bunch of massive power lines, a bunch of massive transmission lines. Now, not only do we need more transmission lines, you're going to need bigger ones, you're going to fix the ones that we currently have. Apparently, our energy demand, and this is probably you know, obvious, is going to increase as we're electrifying everything, but it's going to increase, the demand is going to increase between like 40 to 100% if we electrify our grid to replace fossil fuels. Now, that is a massive increase a massive increase, but that makes sense. If you're changing everything that's currently natural, I mean, like fossil fuels into these, like, you know, renewable, like electric resources here, 
then obviously there's going to be a massive increase in the amount of energy that we're using. So yes, we are going to need more infrastructure to transmit this new amounts of energy that we're going to be needing to have. So obviously the Biden administration is not completely ignorant to this. President Biden has said that he wants to invest into this. And he also that he wants to cut admissions by half in the U.S. by the year 2030. That is the goal right now. Not only that, but with the recent passage of the infrastructure bill that does not have any kind of catchy name like Build Back Better, it's just called the infrastructure bill. There was $65 billion allocated to transmission lines for this exact purpose and for what they call, quote unquote, clean energy technologies. This was uh, in a little press release that was put out by whitehouse.gov. I'll have that linked in the description as well. So you think, yes, that is a huge sum of money in order to address this problem. Surely that has fixed the problem. The answer is again, no. Uh, unfortunately, you know, according to the studies that I am seeing here, to fully fund these transmission lines, it seems though we need somewhere in the neighborhood of actually $320 billion. And that's just for the transmission lines. That's not also including what is expected to be around $450 billion for solar plants. That's not also including what is estimated to be $500 billion to fully fund the new wind farms that we're going to need. Now, you know, you add that up, obviously, we're talking about well over a trillion dollars. And in this day and age where everyone's talking about inflation, this and inflation, that a lot of people are going to be scared about a number that large. Democrats and Republicans both have a very you know, familiarly said in line that they both like to say over and over and over again. I think it's everyone's favorite line in Washington at this point. And that line is, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Right? That's basically their favorite thing to say. How are we going to pay for it? Funny that that question never comes up when we're talking about the military budget, but I'll just keep saying that over and over again because we never ask how we're going to pay for the military budget. Anyway. Now, on the Republican side, they've never really cared about this issue. And I want to distinguish here for a second that I'm not talking about Republican voters. I know that there are some Republican voters who care. But Republican officials, elected representatives, they don't really care all that much. So if you're one of those few Republican listeners who is listening to my podcast right now, this is your chance to reach out to your representatives. Ask them why they do not give a shit about any kind of environmental bills or environmental funding. This is probably one of those times where we need to be funding this kind of stuff. In the 2020 primary, all 40,000 people who were running to be the next president on the Democratic side, they were saying, they obviously it wasn't 40,000, it was more like 10,000, but all 10,000 people who were trying to run for president back in 2020, they all kept saying how much of an existential threat that climate change was existential threat that climate change was all they all had individual town halls that were put on by the sunrise movement where each one of them was making their sincere pledge to save our planet and these same democrats apparently were okay with only allotting 65 billion dollars for a project that needed well over a trillion so the next question does become, well, let's be fair for a second. Do we actually have the money to pay for something like this? Like if we actually wanted to, if, the, if there was actually the will to do that, do we legitimately have the funding to go ahead and pay for a project that this large? You know, it is a question worth asking. And again, you know, before I actually get to the number I have here in front of me, I'm also going to just poke again at the, at the military budget which gets $800 billion every year, every year. But besides that, there was a study conducted at Yale that said that just in the year 2020, just in the year of 2020, coal, oil, and gas companies in America received 
$6 trillion in subsidies. To be specific, they, they said 5.9 trillion. I rounded up to six. I'll have that. I'll have this article linked in the episode description as well. So my point is we have the funding. We've been told by several people on the Democratic side, at the very least, that climate change is an existential threat. We have Biden saying he does want to cut admissions, but the bill that's supposed to be the centerpiece of his administration so far, this infrastructure bill, when it was passed, they didn't even pass one-tenth of the funding needed to address the problem. So what gives? On the campaign trail, Biden time and time again said that he wanted his presidency to be a transformative presidency. In fact, someone in, uh, noted this in the New York Times. An author by the name of Jennifer Medina wrote this back in August 26th of this past year. She says, during his campaign, Joe Biden made no secret of the presidential legacies he aspired to, frequently invoking FDR and Lyndon B. Johnson. The two Democratic presidents both passed sweeping legislation that transformed the country. And Mr. Biden didn't hide his plans to do the same. Now, 10 months into his presidency, his initial proposals have been shipped away by members of his own party. And critics say what's left is less like the New Deal and more like a shell of itself. Now, I couldn't agree more because what has been left over of that infrastructure bill and Build Back Better is currently, as we know, dead. It's just not adequate enough. It's not enough for someone who claims that he wants to be a transformative president. Let's talk about what transformative presidents actually did. Since he referenced FDR, let me reference FDR for a second. In 1935, Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the Rural Electrification Act. At the time, electricity in this country was seen more as like a luxury, something found mostly in cities. Only 3% of farm homes and rural homes had access to electricity. 24 years later, in the, in the year of 1959, 99% of all homes in rural America had access to electricity. That is profoundly changing the landscape of a country. If President Biden and the rest of the Democratic Party are as serious about climate change as they've been telling us that they are for the last few years, and if they have the true desire to cut admissions like they say they do, and they really want to invest in this new electric car market and this new electric, just a renewable energy market, then we need to see a more concrete investment into the infrastructure that is necessary in order to make that change happen because their words are not matching their actions. And this is the part of the episode where we all come in. Because again, I, I'm gonna keep saying this because it's as true today as it was the last time I said it, time and time again. Politicians are going to come asking for your vote this year. When they do, tell them that you have desires of your own, that you care about the environment and that you need to see concrete, actual investments into a renewable energy future, not just some pandering, not some just some virtue signaling, not just some empty words that don't actually have any policy behind them, but true policy legislation, true legislation that will actually go towards fixing our broken infrastructure currently, our climate legislation. We need real climate legislation that's actually going to make some transformations in this country because what we currently have isn't it that 65 billion is not enough to truly address the problems that we all have and it's a drop in the bucket for something that's claims to be an existential threat so for those of you who are interested please reach out to your local state federal uh candidates uh, elected officials i mean th these people they are going to come begging for your votes here pretty soon. I mean, if you're in the state of Texas, I mean, the primary has already begun. 
uh, just down there in the state of Texas right now. So early voting has already started in the state of Texas, if that's where you are right now listening to this. These people are always asking for votes. Ask for something in return. You know, just don't let people think that they're going to ride the whole, you know, like blue, no matter who, or red, no matter who, like wave all the way to the general election. Like, don't let them get away with that. And if you want to call your current reps on the federal level, the number is 202-224-3121. You can reach your congressperson or your senator through that number. Call them. Leave them a voice message or send them an email, whatever you prefer. Just tell them to make real investments into the infrastructure that we need in order to finally divest and move away from fossil fuels, which are burning up what's left of our climate. So I want to thank everyone for listening to this first half of the episode. If you liked this half of the episode, please go ahead and share this on social media and tag independent thought whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, LinkedIn, people are on LinkedIn, the three people who are still on Snapchat. If you're one of those three people still on Snapchat, go ahead and DM me and and let me know if you're one of those three people who's still on Snapchat. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have my guest for this week for a brand new conversation. So stay tuned after a few words from our sponsors. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through another episode of Independent Thought. My guest for this week is Alex Buskey. Alex, thank you for coming on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm excited. Thank you so much for being here. So like a, like a bunch of my guests that I have come on the podcast, we are talking about you know something that's very near and dear to, to the guests that I'm bringing on here. And this is a subject that I haven't really talked about with my audience that much yet. So I was thankful for you to come on and talk with us about it. So today we're talking about, you know, carbon offsets. And I wanted to just like ask some really like basic questions to start off with for those who might be a little unaware of what exactly they are. Could you just briefly explain what exactly are carbon offsets and why are they important? Yeah, so um, there's a variety of different offset types, but the type that I or the company that I work for specializes in is nature-based. And so there are many different flavors of that, but um, where we focus is, so I should back up and say that one, one credit or one offset is equal to one metric ton of carbon embodied in the trees and the vegetation and the soil. 
that exists on a, a property. Um, now, mostly in the Southern hemisphere where carbon is more dense in say a rainforest. And um, the reason that these projects are so important is because the money that's, that's produced from corporates say purchasing these credits and offsets now in this, this small window of time when they're, when they're unable to meet these um, regulations from, from reducing their own scope one and two emissions. So think about their own operational emissions in their supply chain, um, their buildings, things that are gonna take them a lot longer. What they're doing now is purchasing these credits. Like I said, that's one um, equal to one metric ton of carbon existing on the ground. And they're so important because the high quality projects, which is what my job is to filter for, are those that have very a clear line drawn from, um, from the money that's used to purchase those to the on the ground uh, impact. So all of us have no choice but to prepare for changing climate that's happening now. And so these faraway places that are so dense that are being um, you know, mowed down for different purposes, whether that's for cattle or some kind of plantation, they are valuable to us here for um, climate change mitigation. And I mean that from like clean air, cooling, and, and many other benefits that we all receive every single day of our lives and just don't realize it. Um, so what we focus on are the projects that, um, that have that clear line drawn directly to its, I call it human survivability. And, and uh, so, yeah, that's where, that's where we exist. And hopefully that's a clear enough explanation as to, to what, what we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and so I think the next question I want to ask you now is when we spoke before, you referenced the fact that there is some skepticism out there around carbon offsets. And so I got I want to ask you exactly what is the skepticism and how are you as like a company dealing with it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I when I first started this, I I mean I was in the same boat. There's a lot of skepticism around the impact that this truly has. And I think that to answer that, um, for myself and for others, um, it's so these these projects that we accept and develop are um, they're they're not it's not like by these corporates purchasing these credits they're able to the only way they're able to do that is they're not able to um, they're, they're monitored basically and they're not able to then go do dirty things in other places it's called leakage that also happens on the ground as well where just because this project exists and um, they're halting deforestation or changing how the forest is being harvested for um, for uh, better carbon sequestration it it doesn't it, it they're not allowed to go do that same activity in another place you know what i'm saying so so the same happens with corporates they're not able to go in and so they sign on to certain commitments. So there's SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative. And every year, they're just tightening the belt, basically. They're, they're supposed to reduce their, their emissions internally as much as possible. And we only work with those folks. And so they're not able just to continue doing business as usual and purchasing carbon offsets. They need to also be progressing towards reducing their own internal emissions and then these are just additional to help meet those goals. And so eventually, you know, the hope for all of us here is that this will be phased out. And the real impact of, of carbon uh, projects now is the, that we are finally valuing ecosystem services in our economy. And that this will be like the first step to innovation for us to do that beyond carbon. And that's how I see it in my mind, at least. And so there's also skepticism around how these corporates who are purchasing them um, use them. You know, a lot of them make claims that, you know, you're purchasing uh, carbon neutral uh, um, gasoline at the pump or whatever, you know, and that's just, we recognize that that's not, um, that's just so inaccurate. That's impossible to make that claim. So. Right. We don't work with those companies. We work with companies who are only um, responsible for their own 
um, internal emissions reductions. And then our hope is that uh, we're able to, to stimulate enough innovation in the space where we're going beyond carbon and, and um, we don't know what that looks like yet, but um, yeah, learning every day, so. Yeah, well, you know, you actually just answered my next question because I was gonna ask you how you determine which companies that you are going to work for or work with rather. So obviously, you know, you're taking probably like oil and gas companies out of the equation. Is that safe to say? Safe to say, yeah. Most of the time right now we're working with, um, or lately our clients have been um, large real estate developers. And so a lot of them, they own, I mean, buildings all over the world. Um, and one in particular, I can, I can mention that we're working with one in New York City and they're signed on to the science-based targets initiative. And they don't like, they don't even market the fact that they're purchasing these offsets. They're not creating any kind of narrative out of it. It's just all internal for their own uses. And so we're work, working with them to, on top of their, on top of, or as part of their SBTI commitment, um, meet those offsets with these kinds of projects. And they could be purchasing offsets from hydro projects, um, you know, all kinds of things that are not, not, there isn't that clear line drawn to climate change mitigation, which I think is super important for us because um, if we aren't doing that simultaneously as we're, we're reducing emissions for all of these organizations who are, um, you know, not turning to renewable energy and not, um, you know, not being responsible for, for their current emissions now, then if those two, two things aren't working in unison, we aren't finding new innovative ways to manage land. And it's not all about conservation, it's about long-term solutions where, where people who are living there on the ground have real purpose and incentive to, to be, um, you know, stewards of these places, even here in the United States. And um, that changes forest management on a large scale. Um, so, yeah, I mean, don't remember where I was going with that one, but uh, yeah, hopefully that your answer, your question's answered. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that I, I want to know, just kind of get like a more or less a clear picture is when, when a company approaches you and says, hey, we want to, you know, become carbon neutral. How exactly does your company like work with that, that company or those companies in order to get from point A to point B? And what role do you play in all of that? Yeah, so they, they've already hired usually a, a greenhouse gas accounting firm, and they've gone in and done a full assessment. Usually it takes a year or two, and it's, it's phased between which scope of emissions they're, they're measuring. And so they go in and they're, they're measuring emissions, say, internally in their day-to-day -day operations. Then they move on to their supply chain, and they're trying to find ways to reduce. And so they have set they've set goals of actual activities, milestones that they need to reach in, um, in reducing those emissions in those areas of their business. And then at the end of the year, if, if they aren't able to meet that goal completely, then they'll, they'll look to um, offsets. And SPTI is very unique science-based targets initiative because they have clearly stated that they only support certain offset activities as being used for um, for credits for offsets by these organizations that are signed on. So they're not just saying that they can use any kinds of cheap offsets out there to reduce their emissions. Additionally, they're saying that they have to have these certain projects that are that have very very high standards and go through certain verification bodies, which is where we work and. Um, we're, what we're doing when they come to us then is we're saying, okay, wh where are you at with your SB, your major goals? Where's the gap? And then we find out like, uh, for instance, are they looking to market this externally to their consumers? Are they looking to do this internally? Is there no marketing at all? What kind of things are they looking for? So like a, you think about a, a real estate development organization, they're very urban in nature. And so they're looking for projects that have high impact on um, protection in uh, places with high levels of biodiversity. And so um, we'll partner with them to find projects or projects that we've developed ourselves um, that meet those criteria. And um, yeah, so when they come to us, they've already hired an accounting firm to assess 
the exact needs and then we're just supplying them with those needs. Okay. And so I know that we'd also discussed the fact that throughout your work, you know, one of the things that you also have to do is, you know, interact with people around the world, specifically in the Southern Hemisphere, as you were saying, who have been impacted by climate change. And it's a lot of these stories that I feel get lost in translation when we're talking about things like this. So that, that's a question that I want to bring to you now. It's like through your interactions with people, like, you know, indigenous folks, you know, like local farmers, just people who are experiencing climate change firsthand, how has it been, I guess, interacting with some of those people? And what are some of the stories that I think that have, um, that have impacted you like throughout your time working? Yeah, I mean, so you can imagine, uh, you know, uh, a local community, a coastal community in an area, say on the Gulf of Mexico, that in the past has relied heavily on uh, mangrove habitat for fishing because that's the, where the fish uh, reproduce in low salinity level waters. And over time, they've been incentivized to take on activities, commercial activities that are by nature degrading those ecosystems. And um, so you can imagine things like grazing cattle. So taking down those, those uh, mangrove forests. And then the other one would be um, overfishing an area generally. And so these, these folks have immense generational knowledge that they're just throwing out the window basically for these incentives. I mean, it's financial. These, um, these people are getting paid to do something more than they would have by um, sustainably fishing for their own purposes, um, these ecosystems. And so now that it's you know a generation of doing that, they've overfished, so they can't rely on that anymore. And they've removed the habitat that they relied on for those um, purposes. And um, so the only way to restore that is through another incentive. And so carbon revenues produce that incentive for them to restore the places that they relied on. And um, and yeah, so. Um, hopefully that answers your question. That's, I mean, in general, those are the kinds of stories we hear and, um, yeah, it draws the line to people, you know, not just a, a place. So I, I definitely think that it's important, you know, to tell those stories. So I, I definitely appreciate that because there are so many people around the world who are being impacted by climate change and we hear about it in the abstract, but, to get a more details, I think is always it's always necessary in order for, I think, to have the full picture of how climate change is truly affecting people. But speaking of which, I think that brings me to the next thing that I, that you pointed out that I thought was good to emphasize. You had said that you don't believe that carbon offsetting is actually the answer to, you know, some of our issues that we're dealing with climate change, but rather just which you would hope is just the beginning of addressing climate change on a broader level. Can you speak directly like to that and where do you think we should be going next? Yeah, I mean, I think that you see, so you, we've, we've, been, we've been polluting at such a, a high rate for so long and now you're seeing the real dollars being spent to, um, to pay for that. And so all along that's been there, that's been a risk that we were supposed to be paying for, you know, right along as we, as we started, you know, developing in these cities and, and producing all these products. And, and now we're just paying for it all at once. And we never accounted for that. And so in the future, I think more and more, everyone's realizing that, or I hope everyone's realizing at least, um, definitely seeing more people jump into the space, which makes, which makes me realize that this, that might be happening. Um, that now this, this thought that, that we can actually value these ecosystem services, which is, is what we're doing with a carbon credit and an offset, but just in like a, a way that's still, you know, very band-aid-ish right at the moment, but it's, it's putting cap, if the right projects are putting capital on the ground in the right places into places that are preparing us and therefore paying for what we need to be doing to restore these places. You can imagine that fishery, that area that was incentivized to, to destroy the mangroves. And then now realizing that like, holy smokes, uh, we really needed those mangrove areas, not just for the su sustained um, production of the fish we've, we've so long relied on, but also because like that's, that's 
that's a, a form of storm mitigation there. When storms roll in, those mangroves really help to um, prevent, you know, water from moving inland at high rates and, and high volumes. So um, uh, I think that GDP, for instance, in is just this really interesting way to think about the like backwards way of thinking of the health of a, an economy, measuring the health of a country. There's no person, you know, human piece of that. How happy are the people that live there, or um, you know, the real health, true health of of the um, country isn't realized in that that form of measurement. And so the hope is that in us exploring how uh, how we how we use carbon in our economic system that we will evolve from this into something where we're we're realizing the the ecosystem service benefits that we realize every day and just aren't aren't measuring that in our um you know the criteria that we use to measure measure how healthy our countries are and economically and we and we've realized now that if we don't bring it into the economics of this then then it's just not going to be, it, it's, it's not going to be seen as um, something that we're valuing. So that's what I hope we um, move beyond, we move beyond this and we evolve. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but I do hope that carbon is just a first step in us, us, um, you know, finally valuing and therefore paying for the, um, you know, by valuing ahead of time um, the risk that we're bringing on to ourselves, we will pay for it in real time and prepare for it. And but now, like we're doing now, we're we're working backwards and trying to catch up, and that's that's a lot. And um, so, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate you know you spending all this time with us today. You know, telling us about you know how carbon offsets work, how your company works, what the process has been like, some of the effects it's been having on people. My last question to you is a little more of like a, a personal one. You know, a lot of times when I'm having people come on and talking to me about, you know, the specific nature of their jobs and, you know, what it is they're doing with their lives, whether they're running for office or whether they work in a certain field, you know, the, the question that always comes to me is like the why, you know, like, like why do we choose the, to do the things that we do? And so that's my final question to you is, why are you passionate about this particular field and like what drew you to wanting to to work like in this space yeah i think that um yeah i might have just i probably just answered it in my last my last answer there but basically it's it's um once i once i came to terms with the um what you know the carbon car carbon credit projects the ones that, that produce credits um from you know nature-based ones specifically that have these impacts that the impact on the ground if there are very strict criteria that they need to um, they need to you know check off and and uh, and go through to to become a developed project that made me realize that this on the ground impact was very important in real time now for climate change mitigation and therefore just I mean human survivability like I called it earlier and um, so I think that once I got beyond that, I started to think about, okay, well, what's the long-term solution here to, um, you know, not, not necessarily the long-term solution to climate change, it's just a piece of it still. But I, my hope is that the reason that I'm here and I'm trying to be at the front of this space that's been around for a long time, but just very unregulated in a lot of ways and, and therefore in a lot of innovation coming quickly, is because I, I hope to be a part of shaping what it looks like and um, and how governments start to um, go beyond you know creating compliance markets for, for carbon and they start to actually um, getting start getting creative with the private space around um, how we value these ecosystem services beyond just carbon. So um, that's why uh, and. That's why it's exciting for me, and I'm learning so much every single day. You know, I'm I'm somebody who's who's pretty inexperienced in all of this. I I I've been around. I've worked with the Nature Conservancy and and some projects in Belize, and and uh, but there are people here that know a lot more about this space than I do, and it's been an absolute 
blast to um, learn from them and then also start to be with minds like my own that are looking beyond it and, and where we can go from here. So. Absolutely. And thank you again so much for coming on today. Alex, where, where can people find you if they want to kind of connect with you a little bit more after this conversation? Yeah, best place is through email. Um, I welcome getting an email from anyone. It's just alex at flowcarbon.com. Um, and that's F-L-O-W-C-A-R-B-O-N.com. And yeah, I welcome any, any, uh, any questions, any comments anyone has, and I'd be happy to engage with them there. Perfect. Thank you so much again for coming on and talking with us today. And for everyone else, we'll be right back after this final break with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought once again. If you liked this episode, please go ahead and share this episode on social media and tag independent thought. That is the best way to just help the podcast out. Just help the podcast out. We're trying to grow people, We're trying to like meet new people, meet new audience members. You can help us grow by sharing this episode. I want to thank not just the subscribers, but the patrons, all of the people who are subscribed to my Patreon right now. And if you're not subscribed, don't you want to be a cool person who subscribes to the Patreon? Like, you know, all the cool people are on Patreon right now. The link is in the episode description, everyone. Let's find each other on Patreon these days. No, but in all seriousness, I do appreciate everyone who's on Patreon, who invests into the podcast. I'm expecting to do a lot more with this podcast and the going on, uh, not just the rest of this year, but going forward. Uh, speaking of going forward, I want to talk about what's coming next. We still have two more full episodes and, and another bonus episode. I actually have the option of like three different bonus episodes that I already have pre-recorded. I'm not sure which one to release. I'm going to figure that out pretty soon. But speaking of things going forward again. I kind of teased in a previous episode that there'll be a new format for season five. And I kind of want to hear some thoughts about how you guys feel about this. I've been told by several people that sometimes the episodes are too long. Now I can appreciate that, you know, maybe what was consumable, you know, in the last two years when there was, you know, lockdowns and people not being able to go out um, or not wanting to go out that a longer episode was more digestible but now that things are kind of opening back up and people's schedules are becoming less forgiving that maybe an hour-long episode is just not as easy as it used to be so one of my thoughts i'm not sold on it yet but one of my thoughts is to have the episodes kind of broken up so I was thinking of instead of having one one hour episode throughout the week, I would do the main segment as its own episode. And then the guest segment released maybe like two days later in a separate episode and then doing a third episode, uh, which would be another like little like 20 minute clip. And that third one would just be whatever the news of the week is. So I could always like stay active with whatever's going on during the week. And so there's always some level of current events that I'm talking about. So we're not just doing, you know, while I enjoy doing topics like geothermal and lead and drone strikes, you know, I also want to stay current with whatever's going on in the news right now. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm thinking of, you know, maybe like three 20 minute little episodes throughout the week versus the one like hour long one. So let me know how you feel about that. That is one of the format ideas I'm tossing around. So closing out this episode, I want to just, again, come back to the first topic as I normally do. When I was seeing all the different electric car vehicle, like vehicle commercials going through the Super Bowl, it was very mixed emotions for me because on one hand, I'm excited to see like actually investments being made by private companies into electric into the electric vehicle market at the same time i'm always worried that 
somehow, some way, the you know oil industry, big oil, will find a way to live much longer than it should. You know, because it's very, I just feel as though it's very easy for them to find a way to survive throughout all of this because, you know, maybe they try to, in one way or another, stifle, you know, through lobbying efforts, of course, uh, stifle the production of new infrastructure for renewable energy, which, you know, on one hand, you would think that the electric car market blowing up will be bad for them. But if you're still producing electricity via fossil fuels, then they can still carve out a way to continue to make profit and continue to be relevant in our country. That is one thing that I'm very weary of. And so I just want to make everyone kind of aware of it, that even though we're seeing this new investment into electric, that we need to be aware of all the details, because as it currently stands, our electricity still comes from fossil fuels. It still comes from fossil fuels, more than 60% of it. So just something to be aware of as we're going forward. You know, I I just know for facts, especially coming up here in the next month, uh, President Biden's going to give his State of the Union speech. He's probably going to talk about all the greatness that he's done, which that's kind of laughable. I just don't want people to have the wool pulled over their eyes as far as what has actually been accomplished with the Biden administration versus what they said they were going to do versus again, what they, you know, like claim they wanted to do on the campaign trail. It feels like those keep taking steps down. So I just want to keep everyone aware of, you know, where we're at versus where we should be. So I hope you guys appreciate that. If you have any suggestions for future episode topics, I am currently curating a list for season five. So throw your topic ideas at me and I'll add it to my list if I don't already have it on there. And if I like the topic, let's be serious. So with that being said, thank you all again for tuning into this episode of Independent Thought. We will see you in the next one. Have a good week.